4, verse 17. Uh, number two says, tonight we resume the video series. That's looking a little iffy. Yeah. Do we want a show of hands or just... Because the camp thing is happening, and I don't know if anybody's coming back. So why don't we say no for tonight? Let's, let's, say, let's say no evening service tonight. And can that go out on the thing? Great. Um, and number three is camp. SGBA Youth Camp begins today. Yeah. So remember to be in prayer for that. Uh, always a challenging time. Uh, lots of work to do. Dean is either here or in transit. I don't know. Does anybody know where Dean's at? Anybody know where Dean's at? He is, uh, he's in the state. He's in the state. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, pray for Dean. I think he's here uh, by himself this week. Uh, so. I heard that there's 50 campers. 50 campers? We're close. We're, we're wow. That's. And it's supposed to be. That's a big number. Hot. Yeah, yeah, and, and going to be 100 degrees. So, yeah, pray for those poor people over there. It's not the most comfortable place that I've ever been to. <laughs> <laughs> They're all young. Uh, um, see Andrea's number there. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. I missed that one. Deficit. Oh, yeah, probably. Wednesday at camp? Yes. Yes, thank you, Sheila. Yep. Wednesday will be at the camp. That's Lael. If you don't know where that is, ask anybody. They'll get you there. Um, <clears throat> or Google it. Acts and Facts are here for July. The care package thing still going on there. You can see the list on the helps board. Um, if you are the last person to leave the church building, make sure the lights are turned off and the doors are locked. Uh, Free Grace broadcaster also here uh, on the foyer table. A couple of notes here. Um, Clara May fell and is kind of banged up, so I don't know any details about that other than I don't see her. So... Uh, she must be feeling a little poorly. And is it Bob Winter? Yes. Bob Winter um, has had a heart attack, and that was this week? This morning. This morning. Last night. This, last night. So Bob Winter is in the hospital uh, with a heart attack. If you could also add him to your prayer list. Okay. What else? Anything that I forgot? Overlooked? Robin Henry. Robin Henry. You want to give the latest... So, first on the list there, not doing well is probably an understatement. So, pray for her. Okay, scripture for meditation. Psalm 74.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service this morning. Dale, can I ask you to open? Absolutely. Thank you. Our God and Father, how thankful we are for today, another day that you've given us to come and breathe, wake up and breathe your air and hear under your sun, the sunshine. Thank you that you've given us this time to come and worship your, your son. brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 5252 in the brown.
And I am going to uh, usurp today's pick. Um, if, <laughs> sorry. Um, it, number 310 in the Brown Hymnal, number 310, um, it's So Send I You, and that's this year's um, theme song for camp. Um, that's missions-based this year, and um, we thought we'd just share it with you. You are going to hear it again, probably in a different version next Sunday, but um, just to get us thinking about this week in the mission and all that, just number 310, and that's why I picked it and stole your pick. I'm very sorry, but not really. <laughs> Scripture reading this morning is taken from Nehemiah 4. We'll be reading verses 6 through 23, 755 in the Pew Bible. Shall we stand? 
Nehemiah 4, beginning with verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Verse 6. Already I got it wrong. <laughs> 6 through 23. <laughs> so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their uh, heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Amorites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people... In Judah, the strength of the laborers is giving out. In Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is uh, so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Verse 11, also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put them uh, put an end to uh, the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told uh, us ten times over, whatever you turn, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the uh, exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember, the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your uh, brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that uh, we were aware of this plot and that God had uh, frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. For that day, on half of my, uh, half of my men, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and air armor. The officials posted themselves behind all of the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried uh, materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you 
hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of day dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have, everyone, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me uh, took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went uh, for water. May God bless his word today. We're going to do something different than what it says. Take the blue hymnal. Most of them should be on the edge of the... Might be in the room. The tune in the brown is not the one we want, he says. I didn't check the tune. It's okay, honey. Just They, they all think everybody has blue hymnal. 477 in the blue. Four seven seven in the blue. We good? Um, there's one up here. Four hundred and seventy-seven. We good? Right back there.
think the bell broke. The air is on, but boy, doesn't feel like it, does it? Our text of scripture this morning is Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 4. Maybe closing that back door, I don't know. That might help. Thank you. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the challenge that Nehemiah gave to the Israelites. Chapter 2, verse 17. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Well, the people took Nehemiah at his word, and each one had a clan with its various families assigned to a section of the wall that they were going to do. I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of Jerusalem, but when it talks about going up to Jerusalem, it's not talking about the southern part of the country and you're going to the northern part. No, it's talking about going literally up a hill to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is built on a hill. Just think about that. That in itself is a defense. Any army would have to run up a hill to get to the city. And then on top of that, there's this tremendous wall uh, built around the city. Only in the days of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the wall was smashed down to nothing. So that's why it's in wreck and ruin in the time of Nehemiah. We know that every, everyone from Eliashib, the high priest, to the merchants, the goldsmiths, to the women, to the servants of some of the opposing governors, they put their hands to the work. And they were just ordinary people with ordinary skills. They were not masons and, you know, stone cutters and all of that. Yeah, none of that. But the wall began to be resurrected out of the rubble. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab heard of the work, they ridiculed the Jews and the quality of their construction, and they suggested, of course, that the project would never reach completion. Why? Because it's a bunch of amateurs that are doing the work. It'll never get done. And if it does get done, it won't get done right. The mockery and disdain was really against God and the fact that God's people were doing the work for his glory and the exaltation of his name among the pagans. And we saw how ridicule and mockery is part and parcel of being a follower of Christ. The ridicule and threats backfired, however. The Israelites worked with all of their heart, the scripture says, and the wall of Jerusalem was built to half its height, verse 6. We learned that when fear arises because of the hostility of the world to the gospel, we're, we are not to quit in fear. We're to work all the harder. And the strength of Nehemiah's faith was in his close attachment to God, and his close attachment to God was what? It was his prayer life. He was a man of prayer. 
Today we want to study what happened when the Israelites began to make progress on their building project. If you think the enemy was just going to roll over and play dead, you need to think again. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we do love these histories of the Old Testament because they show us that you have had your people in every age, in every situation. If, it, if we say, and, and we do say, that it's difficult living the Christian life in a hostile world, it isn't like this is something new. It has always been that case. It's always been difficult. We've always had hostilities against the truth of the gospel. And the hostilities sometimes take on very physical dangers. And I pray that you will help us to see what our role is in such situations. Bless those of our people that are sick today and out ill. We ask for your strength. We pray that you will bless and honor your word for the glory of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our text is Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're looking at today at the prudent defense the Israelites uh, built with regard to constructing, rebuilding their city. You know, in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon, he came in there with his armies and he leveled the stone wall of Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, it says in the book of Ezekiel that not one stone was left upon another when Nehemiah or when Nebuchadnezzar uh, left the city. Now, we're not talking little pebbles, we're not even talking rocks like that. We are talking huge mammoth stones that weigh tons. If you look at the original construction of the temple, they mined the stones north of Jerusalem and they shipped them, believe it or not, by way of the Mediterranean Sea, brought them to shore uh, and then tracked them across the land to Jerusalem. And we are talking monumental stones and work. I don't know how big they were. But I'm guessing they were probably at least half the size of our walls here. Huge. You could run a chariot on top of the wall. So we're not talking little dinky. Um, we're not talking a fence. We're talking something that is very, very massive. Well, something drastic happened when the Israelites reached the halfway point on the construction of the wall, verse 6. The enemies of God were looking on in mockery and ridicule. They always do that. They were heaping insults on the amateurs who were trying to do the impossible just because they were am amateurs. But as soon as the wall reached the point of one half its height, the smug smile on Sanballat and Tobiah's face faded and they realized for the first time that Nehemiah and his people meant business. It was kind of like a wake-up call. Whoa! It dawned on these mockers that their ridicule and disdain had not dissuaded the Israelites one bit. No, if anything, it inspired them to work all the harder with all the more fidelity. Verse 6. I know, I, I know that ridicule works this way sometimes. It does. 
True, sometimes it discourages people from going on, but at other times, it encourages people. I mean, you keep telling a person, he's never going to make it, you can't do it. That his work will fall by the wayside. You keep saying that, and in some, that's all they need to work harder to prove that you're wrong. Well, when the wall reached half its heights, something changed in the enemies of Nehemiah. For one thing, the enemies grew in number. Verse 7 mentions not only Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, but now the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod. Well, Tobiah was an Ammonite, according to chapter 2, verse 10. And so now he had incited his own town people against the Jews on this project. Ashdod is one of the five major cities of the Philistines along the Mediterranean coast. So you see, the enemies have expanded, and this whole project is being noticed by far more than the local officials. Bad news travels fast. And the success of the Israelites at Jerusalem was bad news from their vantage point. Verse 7, when these nationalities, I'm reading scripture, heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead, surprise, surprise, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. Very angry. I think Nehemiah and the people had wiped the smile off of their enemies' faces. They weren't laughing now. <laughs> no, no, no. No more laughter. No more ridicule. There is a note of sobriety and seriousness that is characteristically distinct from that light-hearted ridicule you can read about in verse 1, verse 2. And this is proven all the more by their next move, verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. No more Mr. Nice Guy. No more standing on the outskirts of the city looking in. No more cheap talk. Now they were going to take matters into their own hands and actually do something to bring this project to a halt. The war drums were beating. You say, well, I thought these governors were given strict orders from King Artaxerxes to cooperate with Nehemiah in this project. Well, that's true. Didn't Nehemiah carry letters of instruction to that effect? Chapter 2, verse 9. Yeah, he did. He had letters that said, you know, cooperate with Nehemiah, rebuild the walls. All of that's quite true. But King Artaxerxes is thousands and thousands of miles away in Persia. So what goes on in a distant province could be over and done with before he heard even one word about it. <laughs> Just think about that. And add to that the fact that the Ashdodites rebelled against the Assyrian Empire in the days of Isaiah. You can read about that, Isaiah 20. And you can see that these provinces took liberties against 
the wishes of the king at times. And they did so with very little recourse from the government. I mean, what, what's the government going to do about it? The vastness of the Persian Empire made it impractical to control every local uprising in a provincial squabble. Now let them work it out. They'll, they'll get past it. This was just one city and one province ruled by one governor which was having a little bit of trouble. What I am saying is that Nehemiah was out there on his own. King Artaxerxes of Persia was not going to send any relief soldiers to his aid. At this juncture in the history, three additional discouragements came upon Nehemiah and his workers. Number one, verse 10. Meanwhile, oh boy, meanwhile, look out for the meanwhiles. That means something else is in play. Something else is going on. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, you know where Judah is, the southern part of Israel. They said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble we cannot rebuild the wall. This was not a complaint. It just was a statement of fact. With the wall built halfway, a disheartening realization began to set in, which suggested we are never going to get this project finished. There's debris everywhere. We have to move ten broken stones to find one good stone. We've been at this project for months. Everyone is stressed to the max. Our muscles ache. It feels like our extremities are ready to fall off. We're exhausted. We cannot do this anymore. Perhaps you can relate to this in some measure by considering maybe some of the projects you've done around your home. Like cleaning out the garage. Oh no. <laughs> well, if you're a pack rat like me, you spend the whole fall and winter months finding jewels that people leave out along the curb of their homes. You bring them home, oh, I'm going to repair that. Oh, I'm going to paint that. Uh, I'm going to find a use for that or for some other person. And where do we put these prizes? In our garage. Eventually the car gets shoved out into the driveway because of all the stuff. And by spring the whole garage is cluttered with everything from broken vacuums and small appliances to usable tires and partial tube floors and sofa beds and outdoor, or outdated rather, computers, broken bicycles, broken air conditioners. Have you ever tried to bring order out of hodgepodge? You move the broken bicycle and the computer box that was propped up against it falls down. You pick up the air conditioner, there's no place to move it to. You can't get to the shelving on the wall because the sofa that you scarfed off the street is blocking the way. Everywhere you look, it's a nightmare because of the chaos and eventually you figure out that you have to literally carry everything out into the driveway 
and then systematically begin to reorganize the garage from scratch. That old air conditioner you were going to fix two years ago, you either got to fix it or throw it out. The vacuum either gets its new belt and brush installed or you have to throw it out. Well, this was the people of Judah in our story. To replace one stone block in the wall, bless their heart, they had to move ten. And they had to scrape away and transport all the broken stones which were no longer salvageable and try to find other stones which would fit together well. And anyone who has ever done new construction or remodeling will tell you that new construction is a breeze by comparison because you do not have to tear out, tear down, discard before you start to build. To remodel, or as in the case of the Israelites, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem required ten times the expendable energy because so much rubble, verse 10. And the strength of the laborers was dwindling fast. That's the first discouragement. The second discouragement to hit Nehemiah and his people was this, verse 11. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the war. Plotting of the enemy in verse 8 was becoming a reality. The armies were beginning to mobilize, and their solution to the Jewish building project was the same solution Hitler devised in World War II. They planned to kill them, just plain and simple. We'll kill the workers, and that'll stop the work. The workers tiring out and being discouraged from continuing that was an internal problem. The enemy planning to attack with swords and spears and to bring about death and destruction, that was an external problem. Both of them played heavily on Nehemiah's mind. Oh, but there was yet a third incident which occurred at this juncture, verse 12. Then the Jews who lived near them, near the enemy, that is, came and told us ten times over, whatever, wherever you turn, they will attack us. How'd you like to have that? Ten times over, these guys that are living on the outskirts of the broken down walls of Jerusalem, they come in to see the officials and they say, they're going to attack us and kill us. They're going to attack us and kill us. They're going to attack us and kill us. How'd you like to hear that ten times? You know how you sometimes hear bad news and you don't want to accept it? You're a little skeptical that things are going to happen as you have been told. From his own people, from those who had a vested interest in the work of Jerusalem, the report came to Nehemiah, we're going to be attacked. They're going to kill us. 
No one will escape. We're all going to die. These people mean business. The death blow is coming. The armies are mobilizing. They're readying their armament. We have no place to turn. Ten times over, this negative news came to Nehemiah and his workers. And these three incidents, prefaced by the words, meanwhile, verse 10, also verse 11, meanwhile, also again verse 12, meanwhile, I think it was similar to the barrage of bad news which Job heard about the misfortunes which had befallen him when he was under the attack of Satan. In his case, no sooner had one servant given him bad news than another came with more bad news before the first had finished speaking and another servant came in. It was bam, bam, bam. All the time, bad news. I think it's time like these that make many doubt their faith and they question God. What would you have done had you been Nehemiah and these three discouragements came your way? This is a test of leadership. The test of leadership is not in the times of tranquility and peace, but in the times of heartache and opposition and trouble. Persecution tests the mettle of leaders. Fortunately for Israel, the nation had in Nehemiah a strong leader. Verse 9, in a general statement of what Nehemiah did, when the neighboring governors plotted against him, he prayed to God and posted a guard. That seems very prudent. Verse 13 and following give us the details. That guard that he posted consisted of whole families. Extended families with armed swords, spears, bows. Verse 13. He positioned them in the most vulnerable places along the wall, the low spots, the exposed spots, where the enemy would attack first because of the weakness of such locations. Secondly, Nehemiah addressed the whole assembly of people from the officials down to the common guy. Don't be afraid of them, he said. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Sometimes leaders have to actually tell the people not to be afraid. You have to get them thinking in another dimension. Think about God and his awesome power. They have to tell them that to prepare for battle, they need to be ready to defend what is rightfully So Nehemiah took precautions, boasted guards, challenged the people. Thirdly, what did he do? He cut his workforce in half. Did I read this right? Verse 16. Half continuing to build while the other half stood guard dressed in full battle array. Wait a minute. Would you have done that? when the ones already working on the wall were worn out from the project, verse 10, and you're going to cut the workforce in half? 
Yeah, he did. And fourthly, Nehemiah instructed the workers who carried on the project to work with, uh, I can't believe this, to work with one hand and carry a weapon in the other hand. Verse 17, verse 18. Thus cutting the workforce again by one half. Think about the math here. Gee, Nehemiah, do you really have the concern of your people as the foremost thought? You're having this and you're having that. You're really making us vulnerable here. Fifthly, Nehemiah kept the trumpeter by his side, verse 18. And he instructed the officials and the people that whenever they heard the trumpet sound, they were to drop what they were doing and join Nehemiah for they could be sure that the battle was going to be raging at that location. Now each of these strategies employed by Nehemiah consisted of defensive measures. Think about it. Not one of them, not one of them was offensive. An offensive method. No organization of a raiding party or Strike first in the night against the enemy. None of that. No surprise attack on the Israelites, by the Israelites. No assassination attempt on Sanballat and Tobiah, who were the instigators of this aggression. No, none of this. Nehemiah's method was prudent defense. Arm the Israelites, post guards, develop a warning signal. Be prepared to defend your brothers, your family, and your property, but do nothing to antagonize or incite the enemy to attack. That was Nehemiah's counsel. Nehemiah's confidence was in verse 20, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. That sounds very very familiar to the cry of the Egyptians when at the Red Sea they witnessed their wheels of their chariots falling off and their horses falling in the midst of that sea. And what was their cry? Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against us. Against Egypt. Exodus 14 verse 25. As a result of this fivefold defense strategy, what happened? Verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. The first thing which happened is that the work went on. More slowly than before, certainly more demanding than before as the workforce was halved and then halved again by the restriction of having to work with your one hand holding a weapon and only one hand left to work. Verse 21, so we continued the work with half the men holding the spears. 
Secondly, the discouragement which had been reported due to the extensive rubble which had to be removed, verse 10, that discouragement dissipated. Verse 21 says that the workers, now cut in half by the need to stand guard, completed their work through extended hours. What's that mean? Well, it means instead of working the work day ending at dusk, no, they labored, let me read it for you, they labored from the first light of dawn till the stars came out at night. Whoa. Fewer men working longer hours can accomplish what a larger force does in less hours. It just takes longer because of fewer hands, but it gets done. What a surprise it must have been to Sanballat and Tobiah, the enemies of the Israelites, to see Israel just prod on with the work with just half the workers. Any satisfaction they had that they had been instrumental in dividing the workforce would have been short-lived in light of the extended hours and the workers working. And then thirdly, Nehemiah had those people living on the outside of Jerusalem stay within the walls at night, so they could, verse 22, serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Probably in shifts to afford some time for sleep, some time for eating. Thus, Nehemiah increased his guard of the city at night when it was most vulnerable. And finally, we are told that Nehemiah and his immediate bodyguard afforded themselves not so much as the luxury of a bath and a clean set of clothes during the entire ordeal, verse 23. Oh, wow. <laughs> they stayed dressed all the time, ready for the unexpected. Well, if they began to smell like animals, and I'm sure they did... What was that compared to being captured and killed by the enemy? Better to be alert. Better to be about the work. Now there's some powerful lessons here. Number one, God's people have every right to take the proper defensive measures necessary to protect their families, their belongings, their own life, but they're not permitted to go on the offensive to inflict harm on would-be enemies. As our country moves more and more towards disregarding the law and crimes against the Christian community, the tendency in some is to take the law into their own hands by becoming vigilantes. We ought to be horrified and renounce openly those who shoot to death abortion doctors, who bomb clinics, who sabotage the workplace of legislators and judges. That was just in the news again this week. We are opposed to all forms of murder, even the murder of those whose business is the murder. 
of the unborn. God has not called us to become killers, but to protect those we love against them. The whole discussion centers around wherein we place our trust. Our text simply says, verse 9, we pray to our God and posted a guard at night to meet this threat. We prayed and posted. Two Ps there. We prayed to God and posted a guard. It's always the answer, verse 20. Our God will fight for us. Well, if God is going to fight for us, we cannot be the aggressors. We cannot be the perpetrators of evil. We are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I'm reading scripture. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. James 1, verse 19 and And I like this text in James because it addresses the fact that aggressive anger does not always surface in a fist fight or with someone shooting another, but oftentimes with angry words, speech that is cutting, biting, destructive, rather than building up in a righteous use of the tongue. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up, that it may benefit those who listen. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I don't know if you saw the news this week, but there was a fist fight at Disney World <laughs> down in uh, Florida. These, this couple got into a brouhaha with some other and boy, they were slugging away and knocking each other on the ground and blood, bloody noses and all of that. At Disney World, a place where you want to take your kids. Sad to say, there are people in the Christian community who are also fighters. Sometimes fist fighters, brawling in the streets with any who oppose them and who might have done them a bad deed. Others are fighters with their mouth, always popping off, giving people a piece of their mind which no one wants to hear. Telling off teachers, officials, foremen, bosses, anyone in authority who crosses them, you can't talk to me that way, and they chew them out. And they set this poor example for their children who then become the town hoods. God has called us to none of this. The anger of man is not the way to fight the Lord's battles. And if this word does not sink into us, we are self-deceived and not doers of God's instruction. Nehemiah never raided the enemy's camp, never made an assassination attempt on the leaders of the aggression that were against him. Instead, he took those precautionary defensive measures approved by God and he left room for the Lord to fight his battles for him. Our impatience for resolution 
our thought that, well, somebody's got to do something, leads us down forbidden paths of anger, which only make bad things worse. God will fight for his people, but only when they trust him and obey his words. When we become the angry-faced people of the world, God will leave us to our own devices. And you might reap something that you've sown. Another lesson to take to heart here is that some work with double the time spent is better than no work at all. I can sympathize with the lament of the men of Judah whose strength was spent while the wall was only half finished. How were they ever going to complete this project with so much rubble everywhere? Verse 10. And then this new threat of an impending invasion necessitated that block layers become posted guards, more headache, more drudgery for the workers who remained. It would have been so easy for the few workers who remained to say, I'm out of here, I'm going to quit. There may have been enough justification for such a thing from a human standpoint. But men and women of faith cannot quit just because the workers are few. They were doing a good work, a work for God and his glory. No one said it was going to be easy. It's never easy. There's always opposition, if not from the outside world, from the complainers and whiners and sideline bystanders on the inside. Like Nehemiah's workers, the non-involved of half has a crippling effect on the work. In Nehemiah's case, those block layers who no longer laid blocks were assigned military duties every bit as important to the work on the wall. But in our case, often those non-involved in the work are not doing other important and supportive work. They're sitting on the sidelines. They're criticizing the work that the others are doing. They are like the Jews in verse 12 who unwittingly contributed to the discouragement of Nehemiah and his workers by repeating, I don't believe this, ten times over, you're not doing that right. I wouldn't have done it that way. That's not going to work. There must be a better way. That was a stupid idea. Who thought up this plan in the first place? This is sure to fail, etc., etc. Almost without taking a breath or at least a moment to seriously ask, what am I doing to help? This does not mean that what people do in the work of God is above Constructive criticism, but it does mean that no one uninvolved in the work of Christ is a credible critic. I will listen to what my fellow workers have to say. Their hands are with mine on the trowel, carrying the bricks, mixing the mud. But I'm not going to listen to anyone who has an axe to grind because things are not going their way. And yet they themselves are not contributing 
the energy, the time, the talent needed to complete the work. But they got a lot of say, to say about it. I don't think you should listen to them either. If you do listen to them, you will be caught up in the bitter and unrighteous spirit which possesses them. It's easy to sit on the sidelines and be negative. That's not going to work. I wouldn't have done it that way. What do they think they're doing? A word of encouragement to those who are putting in long hours from dawn till the stars come out at night. Verse 21. It may take longer to get the project done than if there were a full workforce devoted to the work. But you know God's house, God's work will be built more slowly, that's true. More methodically, that's right. More agonizingly, yes. But it will get done. And you will have the joy and the satisfaction that you have had an active part in it because of your sincere faith in God. In you, the word of God has not been simply listened to. It has been obeyed. And that marks you out as a true disciple indeed with true courage. Anybody can talk up a good line. Anyone can be critical. Thirdly, the trumpet call which rallies the troops and unifies the workers, though we be spread out, verse 19, is the assurance that our God will fight for us, verse 20. I like that. This is not an idle dream, but it's the sure word of God which we lay out on our which we lay our hope on. If God be for us, said Paul in the New Testament, if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, verse 31. Same principle. And he went on to say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring the charge, any, any charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies. If God justifies you, just think about this. Do you need any justification from men? Do you need human approval and applause for your allegiance to Jesus and your labors for his kingdom? I know there are some people like that. If they don't get a few kudos, to, oh, you did a good job there, boy, oh, yeah, let me pat you on the back. If they don't get that, they're, they're, it's soon they're out of here. You know, they're gone. Well, I did this and they didn't appreciate it. It's an awesome thing to have God fight for you. To have Christ defend you. Nehemiah reminded his workers, don't be afraid, verse 14. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I like that. Have you remembered the great and awesome Lord? If you do not know God safely in the person of his son Jesus, 
then you are the one whom God fights against, not for. And if you profess to know God, like Tobiah the proselyte in our text, and yet you're critical and slanderous and belittling of the work of God's people, all the while contributing nothing to the work yourself, then you too have forgotten the awesome nature of God, for he will not take your insults lying down. They needed to get this in their mind. This wall was around, was to be built for the glory of God. May we all today assess where we are in relationship to God. Am I truly in Nehemiah's camp of faithful workers, laboring on at half strength at times, but I'm getting the work done nonetheless and being assured that God is for us and he will fight for us. Am I in that camp? Or am I in the camp of Sanballat and Tobiah plotting strategies and engineering moves to inflict your will on the minority and to thwart the will of God? Well, if you are, it is God who will fr frustrate your evil designs. Verse 15, and his work will be finished in due course, even if it takes longer. You know, I pray for our association of churches because our association of churches, I don't think there's one mega church in the, in the entire association. We're only an association of five or six churches. And guess what? They're all little dinky churches like us. 35, 40 people. Not even hundreds of people. But doing the work of God. Teaching the doctrines of grace. Teaching grace to sinners. You want to have a sit ascending with God in glory, you're going to have to repent of your sin and, and God's grace is going to have to come upon you. He'll have to grant you that repentance and faith to trust in Him. If God is frustrating your plans, your goals, your schemes in life, you've got to be thankful for that. Because apart from God's will, we, our plans and goals and frustrations are usually self-centered. They have an evil side to them. We're doing this to please myself, my family, to get a pat on the back, whatever. And if I keep going that route, that route, that route, I'm not going this route to please God. What pleases God? The writer of Hebrews says, faith pleases God. Oh, you know, I, th I thought I had to do... No, you don't have to do to please God. What you have to accomplish to please God is to believe in Him and that He will faithfully reward those who seek Him. Faith is His gift. Exercise it in the right direction. Not this direction of self and patting on the back, but the saving faith that puts one's hope and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has done it all. You just got to believe that he's done it all. And he does it for his people because he loves them. Our Father, thank you for your word. Pray your blessing upon it. Human nature is such that we 
we're trying to find ways to please you. We're trying to find ways that we can earn your approval. There are none. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Where am I going to get this faith? Well, I believe in God. No, that's not what it's talking about. I pray, Lord, that you will show us that faith has to do with denying of self and casting all of our trust upon the work of another. That other is your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's done the work for us. He's died our death for us. He's experienced our judgment for us. He's gone to hell for us. He's been resurrected out of the tomb of death and defeated death for us. And if we believe that and accept that, what he has accomplished will accrue to our account. The Bible says so. That's what the faith is all about. It's to have the work of Jesus apply to our account because of his great love. Please help us to see that. Help us to see that there's no physical works or spiritual work we can do. We can't pray our way into heaven. We can't do any of the things that the world thinks of in regard to salvation. You have done it all. Faith pleases God, and I pray that you will grant us that faith. May we cast ourselves upon Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, and we'll sing number 478. 478. 478. Soldiers of Christ arise. Let's stand together as we sing.
great Charles Wesley hymn. Well, he knew how to write hymns. Uh, who's planning to be here tonight? We canceled. We canceled already. We did cancel? Yep. Wake up, Fred. <laughs> you are. <laughs> if I come here, I'll be by myself. But that's okay, too. I can pray. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for your grace and goodness. Uh, we praise you for the word of God. Thank you for men like Nehemiah. They're great examples to us. Uh, fighting against very physical enemies. Sanballat, Tobiah, men that uh, had armies and were planning to do their worst against Jerusalem and against anyone that would try to rebuild that city after it was, being after it was destroyed. The work was terrible, it was hard, it was arduous, but you gave him a will and a heart to work for the glory of God. Someday, we read in the scripture, someday the Lord Christ is going to return to Jerusalem, the holy city, stand on the mount of the holy city and rule the nations, the scripture says. Wow. And the scripture also says that we who know the Lord will reign and rule with him. What a privilege. Well, bless us, Lord. Help us to have a good week serving you. Be with camp this week. Lord, if you would moderate the temperature so it isn't so oppressive, that'd be a great blessing too. Be with our people in the south that are experiencing these great floods that are going on. Please protect your people in Christ's name. Amen.